what makes one want to be in the D. My name is Katie Lehman from the University of Michigan Detroit Center, and I am excited to be hosting this podcast, talking to students, scholars, innovators, and leaders from across the city to learn how they came to live, work, and love in the D in Detroit. Today, I'm happy to have Dr. Rihanna Anderson here with me. Dr. Anderson is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Health Behavior and Health Education at the University of Michigan's School of Public Health and has a very impressive resume of current and past work, both inside and outside of Detroit. So Rihanna, why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about your current work and how you got to where you are today. Sure, well, thank you so much for having me again today. What an honor and a privilege. So what I always tell folks about the work that I do is if you know anything about me, you know that Detroit is the love of my life. And I always conceptualize myself as a young girl growing up on the west side and thinking about how various environmental things impacted me, right? So there were a lot of um, challenges that we had growing up, but there were also a lot of fantastic social structures like my family or community or activities that I was engaged in that helped to protect me from some of these things. And so that is a, a framework for the way that I think about um, Black life. So how do we have both challenges and joys that can come together to make the best Black families, the best Black children um, that we can possibly have? So I think about how racism in particular is one of those challenges and how families, the way that we have the talk um, which in our literature is racial socialization. So the ways that we socialize our children to those challenges, but again, the joys of black life, of black culture, how those two things together can produce psychologically well, psychologically strong, beautiful black children and families. So that's, that's what I work on <laughs> as much as I can, yeah. Okay, and so what now more specifically do you do in that discourse? What do I do during a global pandemic? And I'm <laughs> unable to do my work, or <laughs> um, on a on a day if we weren't in a global pandemic? Okay. Yeah. So um, what I was talking about was racial socialization. This idea of how families have to talk. So the fam families have this talk all the time. You don't need a clinical psychologist like me to come in the mix and tell families to have this talk. That's one of the strengths that Black families have. So right, they're all, all already naturally kind of doing these efforts to help their children cope with and deal with what's going on in the world. So my job really is to think about, well, we have this rich literature. We have all these strategies that Black families are already engaging in. And then we also know from a clinical psychology perspective, all of these tricks and tips and, and ways to discuss things better. So why not meld the two? Why not have the talk, this culturally rich strategy, and these therapeutic strategies, put them together and have families be able to, to have the talk in a therapeutic way. So I developed what we call EMBRACE, which is engaging, managing, and bonding through race. This intervention or a program, essentially, that brings families together to have this talk with a clinician so that the clinician can help families to unpack and unearth maybe some of the things that they didn't even know uh, were impacting them. So as an example, if you have a parent who has been looked at as a parent for the past 10 or 15 years and now has the job of teaching a child about how to cope with the world, when's the last time the parent was able to think about themselves as an individual or even as children themselves to say, what didn't you get when you were growing up? What's challenging for you even now as an adult that you didn't talk about 
for the past 10 years. Let's give you a space to unpack that so that you're able to do this job of parenting so much more effectively now that you've unpacked your own stuff. So we think about how to create spaces, places, time, and strategies for families to have the talk in a therapeutic way. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And so you mentioned a little bit about, you know, your past and your background that got you into this. What kind of educationally led you to, you know, this topic, this program? Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, so, um, well, why don't you talk first a little bit about kind of your educational background, and then was there anything there that kind of prompted you to, you know, be interested in this path? Got it, thanks. Yeah, so I went to the University of Michigan for undergrad, woohoo. Um, so I was a psychology and political science double major at that time, which essentially allowed me to think about the individual level factors in psychology and these greater political social structures that are impacting this individual. And I didn't see beyond like community psychology, there wasn't a lot around how this greater environment is impacting the individual, the individual's psychological well-being, their thought. And it took experiences with Teach for America, which was actually my biggest training opportunity. So of course I did my PhD and, and a, a number of things um, after that, that I'll come back to in just a second. But it was actually what I did right after undergrad, which was Teach for America in Atlanta with these beautiful children um, who taught me more than any textbook could ever teach me that, I mean, really just unearthed how a child's development and what happens in their community and in their family can impact the child themselves. Um, that was the, the richest training opportunity, the richest education that I have ever had. And here I am supposed to be the teacher and I'm learning all the stuff. So really grateful for that experience, really grateful to be in touch with some of my students to this day. So that was, oh, I don't want to age myself, but Lord, that was 2006. That was 14 years ago. And I'm really grateful to be in touch with, with some of my students who are kicking tush to this day. Yes, so... Yeah, so from there, I went to University of Virginia and earned my PhD in clinical and community psychology. Um, and the educational experience there of looking at how the literature talked about Black families and Black parents in particular, how there was this deficit orientation, this language of dysfunction that as a person growing up in Detroit with a Black family struggled to, to read through. I was like, this does not describe who my family is. It doesn't describe who my neighbors were. It doesn't describe anybody. I know who's writing this. Like what, what perspective is this coming from? And as I started finding some literature that spoke to a different way of conceptualizing parenting. So I'll, I'll give you a quick example. In a lot of the literature, setting boundaries for your kids, being a bit quote, harsh on your kids is not something that folks strive for. It's about letting your child explore and have, you know, warmth and, and, and be um, in spaces where they can be autonomous. So in theory, and, and a lot of this is theory, but in theory and in some laboratory practices, like this is perhaps a good outcome for you. But if you can imagine being in spaces where having too much autonomy, going off around the corner, for example, being out of the um, the vantage point of a parent can actually be more challenging to your child. You would want to keep a tighter approach. You would want to understand that saying no very declaratively means that it's a difference between you perhaps being hit by a car or getting um, into a dangerous situation and being safe. So 
this authoritarian approach versus the authoritative approach is something that the literature always kind of speaks to as a problem. But then some black scholars called it no nonsense. They're like, listen, <laughs> you can do both. You can be warm, you can be empathic, you can be understanding. If the situation allows it, you can let your child kind of be autonomous. But in situations where there's no back talk and there's no back and forth, I need my child to, to come hither, like no nonsense. But to hear a reframe like that changed my whole outlook on what we can do with parenting. And it made me look for what are the strengths that we already know we have and how can we utilize those strengths in, um, in various ways. So that's where racial socialization, that's where the therapeutic kind of blend um, of what I was doing really came together at that time. Okay. And what kind of brought you back to Detroit? Obviously, you know, you grew up there, so that probably had something to do with it. But, you know, you saw all these other places. Why Why Detroit? Oh, okay. If I'm honest, like, I don't want to see Snowflake intentionally. Like, I want to <laughs> I want to travel to see Snowflakes. I don't want to, like, walk outside and see Snowflakes. So if I'm honest, I tried really hard not to come back. I was like, let me go to L.A. Let me go to these, like, really warm places. And I just kept hearing my name and the word Detroit together. And it, it just brought me at one point to tears. I, I actually had um, the opportunity to take a job at Michigan or another institution. I chose the other institution because I was chasing warmth. And I came back home for a wedding. And as I was sitting in a coffee shop, tears started coming to my eyes of just how much I needed to come home. And I, it's not about family per se. I have I have a loving family here, but I also had a, a loving family out in California. So, um, you know, there were opportunities to, to be enriched in both spaces. Clearly, I was getting all of my juice and yoga and everything out in California. <laughs> um, but there was this overwhelming feeling of you are supposed to be in Detroit. You are of Detroit. You are for Detroit. You are... Um, made because of Detroit, like you have a responsibility to come back and do the work here because these are the children who encouraged you to do the work in the first place, right? So like just looking around my neighborhood, thinking about the kids who were my peers or my mentors and thinking about what if we had spaces where we could have sat down as children and talk about how race and racism impact us? What if our families would have been able to engage with clinicians in a way that's not stigma filled or deficit oriented but in spaces that are like you're doing a great job as a parent here are a few more strategies just to assist your already amazing work like what if we had that type of protective network and the more that that spoke to me i was like okay fine i'll come home just don't be like a lot of cold weather and snow and then, so, whatever but I'm I how, yeah i held that work out for you <laughs> Actually, we've been doing really well, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna joke with that anymore. I thank God all the time. Like, all right, you've really shown out. Not this April snow situation, but generally been showing out. So good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I want to go back a little bit to the embrace intervention that you talked about. Um, was there something that kind of sparked that in you? Like, how did you come up with that specifically? As you know, how you wanted to move forward into you know, what you're doing now. Yeah, so I think um, I'm part of what we would call like the third generation of black psychologists. So a lot of psychologists when the, the field was just really starting to understand about black culture, 
their their job really was just to put like black psychology on the map to say that race is a factor that's going to impact the ways that that individuals are going to be well psychologically right so again like this idea that it's not because of being a black person it's blackness it's whiteness it's these like racialized ecologies around us that are going to impact the individual and how they develop and function so that was like just like in 1969 like the sheer goal was just to say like we've got something that we need to be considering so the, the next kind of generation and a half said well here's some variables that might be related to that so maybe this is how discrimination is related to psychological wellness for black people right so you've got maybe an xy model this very basic like linear model then maybe the next you know half generation or so said okay we're going to go ahead and and have moderator variables so like the condition by which x and y is true so discrimination impacts your psychological well-being if you have a racial identity that's not fully developed right so the the more your racial identity is developed the less that association is or in my case the more you talk about racial socialization with your kid the less the psychological struggle will be for that child right so you start seeing these conditions by which something is true so all of those things were um, published and we have decades of this really rich wonderful literature and i'm reading it and i'm itching because i'm an interventionist and i'm like okay we know this stuff so like now what like what are we supposed to do and folks are saying you know it takes a, a solid 10 to 20 years to build an intervention i'm like great i'll do it in three months I'm like let's, <laughs> let's do this right so um after my uh, graduate degree at university of virginia i went to yale for a clinical internship in which i was a community um in the community center um, at Yale and was able to take part in, I think, my fourth or fifth intervention at that time. So I've been well-trained in clinical and community interventions, and I started developing interventions at high schools there and, and really just started getting this practice of not only analyzing data for the intervention, not only sitting with community stakeholders to, to start it, but like, how do we actually implement it you know, go through this entire process of getting an intervention off the ground, talking to kids about it. Like, how do, how do we do it? So once I got to um, Philly, I, I did a, a postdoc fellowship at Penn. Once I got there, I had had these years of training experiences, all these opportunities, and I'm working with one of the foremost scholars on racial socialization. And we go to a community meeting and um, I tell them about this idea. I was like, okay, I wrote an application to get funding for my position. I said that I was going to be thinking about over the next two years an idea and then I'll develop it later in life. And they were like, cool, cool. We want it like in the next semester. And I was like, no, that's not how these things work. I'm not going to be able to give you an intervention in a few months. They were like, no, we want it. So we started creating an intervention and, and developed it within a few months. So it was really, it was, it was something that my mentor and I have been thinking about and have been writing about in these applications for me to get funding to to do this fellowship um, but it was the voice of the community that said oh no no you're you're gonna do it sooner than you think <laughs> yeah and what was that like kind of rushing that process and I'll, I'll use the term responding to the um, <laughs> to the needs of community right so I think that this is not answering your question exactly, but the 
the thing that I get told a lot is, wow, your, your work is so timely. And it's unfortunate for me that there is a need for my work. I don't want to have to intervene between that XY relationship, right? I don't want discrimination to negatively impact child outcomes. I don't want that to be true. But because the literature is so robust with respect to how X impacts Y, or again, how discrimination impacts psychological wellness, like something has to happen. And, and I just wasn't seeing a lot of intervention. So when the community said, we want this, I really gave thought to, well, we've got a structure. We're already writing grants on it. We already have a, a theory. Like we, we had the, the bare bone structure. So the idea is you can either sit on something for 18 years to see if it actually theoretically and empirically like might pan out. Or you can jump in knowing all the things that you know and saying, I'm going to have to adapt and change and modify after we learn something. But I'd much rather be doing something, again, with the six and seven years of training I had. So it wasn't like I'm going in blind. Or let me not use that term. It wasn't like I was going in without the knowledge of of how to do this. But um, it certainly was, quote, rushed from an intervention perspective. So it was very hard. It was not... What I was supposed to be doing with my fellowship, I was supposed to be writing and thinking and having space to develop. But um, I'm so fortunate that we did do it and, and learned so much and have had the most rich and rewarding experiences from that moment. And just um, am, like truly enthused to do it here in Detroit. Like, cannot wait. Right when the pandemic hit, was the week we were supposed to go out into the field. So I'm like, no. really? really really sad and, and that's what the U of M Detroit Center like is going to allow for us to do like to bring the community um to that space and to to engage with folks in embrace but as um as we're learning life is going to look a little different so we're yeah. going to think about how to serve the needs of the community um when we get our footing back a little bit yes well that's going to be I think a lot what a lot of people are doing as we transition into whatever comes next after all of this well unfortunately we are running low on time I think this has just flown by um we have I have a few questions that we are asking every guest on our podcast just kind of more general um questions so we're going to end with those kind of not quite lightning round but a little bit more rapid fire um so we'll just jump right into those Um, so first what are you reading Anahasi Coates, um, eight, we were eight years. And what are you listening to? And that can be music, podcasts, whatever kind of listening you're doing. Yeah, quickly, I typically listen to murder podcasts. I can't do it right now. My spirit isn't mm-hmm. there. So I still listen to my very heavy bass trap music. Okay. Um, and what is your favorite restaurant in Detroit? Okay. This, again, is a cheat because it's outside of Detroit, but the original Pancake House all day, okay. hands down, no questions. <laughs> um, and what is your favorite place to hang out or socialize in Detroit? Belle Isle, next. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the last one. Um, if you had someone who was coming to visit Detroit, what is the one thing that you would tell them they had to do while they're there? Oh, gosh. I have a list. <laughs> Really, I have a whole... You can do a couple if you want. Oh, flip. I mean, Belle Isle, I think, is just really special. Mm-hmm. I really love it. Eastern Market, clearly. Um, oh, golly. 
I haven't done the Motown Museum, so I'm going to cheat and say I'm going to take them to the Motown Museum. I think that's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was all that we had. So I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with me today. It was real. I found everything you said really fascinating. I am excited to sometimes 